Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to cover the NBA for SI? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 117 of. The Bridge. <laughs> Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, August 1st, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available after that broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, loyal listeners of this show know that now we usually transition into a couple segments before getting into the interview with this week's guest and closing out the show. Well, it's time to change things up. Oh, say change it up. Change it up. We'll still close out the show with a movie review this week with the film Ant-Man and the Wasp, but first... Let's get down to business. This week's guest is Ben Golliver. He's a staff writer for SI.com and has covered the NBA for various outlets since 2007, and those outlets have included a blog that he started that same year called Draft Kevin Durant. And Blazer's Edge for SB Nation as an editor to cover his hometown Portland Trailblazers. Ben has covered everything from the NBA Finals and Space Jam to Jim Rome's clones and Charles Barkley. Topics that we'll actually get into throughout the show along with how he got started in sports writing. How he's been able to evolve from when he started in the industry and how the NBA has evolved along with that. Some of what he's been able to cover, some of his writing, and more. You can follow Ben on Twitter. He's at Ben Golliver. That's B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Ben Golliver. He is a writer for Sports Illustrated on the NBA side of the beat. You can see his writing there as well as throughout different platforms and also hear him on different platforms as well. Ben, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? Hey, it's my pleasure, man. I'm doing very well. Uh, the, the long grind of Vegas Summer League and USA Basketball Camp is finally behind me. So I'm back, you know, not in 118 degree temperature and uh, you know, it's nice sunny weather here in LA and uh, I can't complain at all. How are you? 
I'm doing well. I don't have the potential 98 degree sunny glorious weather that LA has living in New York City. It's 98 degrees, but it's concrete sidewalk building heat, not nice sunshine heat, as I'm sure you're familiar with. And I wanted to start by turning back the clocks a little bit. And as someone that gets to write about hoops for a living, I'm sure you get this question asked a lot of you. But just in general, I wanted to know when you knew that you wanted to pursue sports writing, when this became something that you saw as more of a career instead of a hobby. And I'm sure that started as well going to college and along those lines. Yeah, well, there's, I mentor a bunch of kids now. They're high school kids or, or college kids, and they already know what they want to do. Uh, for whatever reason, I was pretty clueless about myself. I love sports my entire life. I grew up in Beaverton, Oregon, which is like the home of Nike, uh, and you know the international headquarters there, and uh, you know the Blazers are up in Portland, and so obviously it's like sort of a sports hotbed uh, up there in the Pacific Northwest. But for whatever reason, I never really thought that you know once I gave up dreams of being an athlete, you know, which was you know probably middle school, uh, I never really thought about hey, how could this be a career? Uh, I went to college uh, at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore for writing. Uh, I it's kind of backed into that as my major it was kind of what I was enjoying the most during college it wasn't even necessarily what I went there for and it wasn't a journalism program so when I graduated I was kind of adrift I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do I was working a kind of a typical office job doing sales and marketing for a small business just outside Portland and in 2007 the draft lottery happens and boom the Blazers win the number one pick and I rushed home from work that day and I was just sort of caught up uh, on a whim. I start a Blogspot site. You know, I don't know if you even remember Blogspot, but it was like the most basic, cheap, kind of janky platform, you know, back in the day of, of you could put your thoughts on the internet. It doesn't cost a single penny. So I started a site called Draft Kevin Durant. And I basically just tried to guilt trip or convince or basically just try to like, get through to the Blazers front office for the next, you know, essentially six weeks, the entire pre-draft process. I tried to convince them, take Kevin Durant over Greg Oden. This is the guy who is going to elevate the Blazers, you know, back to the final, sort of like the glory days of the early nineties when I was a kid or, or try to maybe win another championship, like the 77 Blazers that I had sort of, you know, spent my entire life hearing about how amazing that team was. And, uh, I had convinced myself that they were going to just follow my advice. You know, I was pulling out every stop that I could. Uh, but ultimately, of course, they drafted Greg Oden over Kevin Durant. And pretty quickly, that decision did not go well for them as an organization. He was injured, missed his entire rookie year. You know, Kevin Durant wins rookie of the year. Uh, and it just kind of, you know, blossomed from there. And that experience of sort of, you know, being kind of an entrepreneur, launching my own site, you know, trying to, you know, build buzz for it. And I was getting, you know, pretty good attention, like Dead Spin, the big lead, True Who back in the day were were very kind to to link to it. That just kind of got my uh you know, my my feet wet. And I was able to link up with a local uh Blazers blog at that time, you know, pretty small called Blazers Edge. And we were able to use that platform to get us in on credentials. So I was able to cover a bunch of the games sort of you know, moonlighting, and I really wasn't making any money off of it, but it was like a free ticket to the game, and I got to go to the locker room and talk to the players, and I, I was just hooked. I thought, oh, this is amazing. You know, I'm looking around, seeing these different guys who are doing this as their job, and 
finally that light bulb clicked for me, you know, in my mid twenties of like, Hey, wow, this is something that you could really do and turn into a career. You know, it took a few years, uh, you know, probably three or four years. till I had my you know first full-time job working at CBS sports, uh, you know, covering the NBA. And then a couple of years after that, I was, uh, you know, picked up and, and I've been at SI ever since. So that's kind of my origin story. It was dumb luck. Uh, if the Blazers hadn't won the lottery, who knows what I would be doing? I ask myself that question constantly in terms of, you know, would I have ever, you know, stumbled into sports writing? But, uh, you know, I, I consider myself very fortunate. And, uh, you know, I think the basketball gods were, were kind of uh, smiling down on me uh, during that time of my life. Well, I'm sure you tell those that you mentor or young students that if they want to write, if they want to get into radio, if they want to get into broadcasting, do something that proves that, whether it's a blog, whether it's a podcast. There's so many different avenues now where they can show what they can sort of do and then improve on that. Now, I could not get into draftkevindurant.blogspot.com because right now, on Blogger, that's only open to invited readers only. And I'm sure that the information needed for that is long lost from 2007. However, there is a blog from OregonLive.com that references your article, Five Reasons Why the Blazers Should Draft Kevin Durant from DraftKevinDurant.com. It also goes up with the Greg Oden blog to give both sides of the story as to why each team should make their decision. Number four on that list was he's more American than Ellis Island. And I want your students to hear this because I enjoyed one of the reasonings why you were so moved. Quote, a quick recap. His dad is a cop. His mom encouraged him to play basketball to, quote, keep him away from the streets. And this is almost too much, you say, dot, dot, dot. He can play the Star Spangled Banner on the piano. Seriously. I can't even play hot cross buns on the recorder. Somewhere Maurice Cheek sheds a single tear in silent appreciation. All together we sing, this land is your land, this land is my land. Kevin Pritchard, draft Kevin Durant. And if I could sing, I would actually hum that melody because I think that could have taken off. So that just goes to show you folks that, I mean... For starters, back then, this was a big deal. The Kevin Durant-Greg Oden debate was one, and it would have been a lot more of one had the first take embrace debate culture really had been something that was taken off back then. But just so people can see, that's how you get started, putting something together like that, a top five of sorts. So hats off to you for that in general. Well, first of all, the reason I had to pull down draftkevindurant.blogspot.com is because I signed up for a Google Wave. I don't know if you remember Google Wave. And somehow during the sign-up process, I accidentally deleted all the photos from the site. So if you go there, like you can get all the text, but all the pictures are gone. Right. So it's just like little red X's everywhere. So it's basically unreadable. So that's why I had to take it down. Um, you know, in terms of, <laughs> I don't remember writing any of that, but that's pretty funny listening back 10 years, uh, you know, 10 years later. Uh, the Maurice Cheeks reference, I don't know if people know this, that's a Portland reference. When he was the coach, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the national anthem singers struggled when she got out there. She kind of panicked and froze up. So he actually went out there to center court with the microphone and helped her, you know, sing it through uh, the song. And it was, you know, kind of a famous moment where everybody thought, oh, look at, look at Mo Cheeks. He's a great guy. He can't coach at all, but boy, he's a, you know, he's a, a really good citizen. So that, that was that reference. Um, but, you know, in terms of the debate, it was a very big debate in Portland. Uh, right after I started my blog, I actually contacted the Blazers, uh, you know, season ticket sales people and, 
to their marketing people just to kind of feel out like how they were planning to approach it. And they wound up putting up banners uh, or I guess billboards on the highway that said, you know, honk once for Odin, honk twice for Durant. And people were actually doing that around the city. Uh, you mentioned the Oregonian kind of covering my site. They did a print article and they had letters to the editor and sort of below the article about, you know, draft Kevin Durant, there was a, a comment from somebody that said, you know, even cavemen know you should draft Greg Oden. You know, basically that was the mentality in Portland. It was probably 90 to 10 or 95 to 5 in favor of taking Oden. So I definitely went out there on a limb, not just with sort of the goofiness of my writing, uh, but also just taking the contrarian standpoint of, you know, going against conventional wisdom. And that helped me get noticed. There's no question. And, and I think the lessons for younger writers is if you feel strongly about something, like go all in a bit. Uh, don't be afraid to kind of self-promote. You know, I, I think that I was absolutely shameless in terms of self-promoting early on. Uh, and then I think, uh, you know, past that, uh, making sure that you have an end game, right? Like I didn't really realize that I was going to try to get towards credentials, but I did sort of understand pretty quickly that there was an audience for what I was saying. And so to me, it became, how can I grow that audience? How can I get material that people want to read? And, you know, getting your foot in the doors is the most important thing, whether that's taking an internship, whether that is, um, you know, uh, job shadowing, uh, whether that's, you know, meeting PR people, you know, whatever you could do to kind of get yourself in a position where you're going to be able to report information that not everybody else can report, that is going to sustain you because you can't make those goofy mochi jokes as a career. Like, you just can't do it. It, it. Eventually, you're going to run out of that kind of material you're going to need to have more substantive stuff. And uh, that was a transition process. Like I said, it took me a couple of years to kind of get there where I was kind of breaking news and, and kind of being on the ground and, and giving daily reports and, and everything else like that after games. But um, that is sort of the meat and potatoes of what most people want in terms of their coverage of local teams. And uh, I kind of had to transition that. I had to take and to scale back some of the, the zaniness and, and, you know, transition to a little bit more uh, of hard hitting stuff. Right. There is a line in the sand, I guess you could say, going from something like you're doing for SB Nation with Blazer's Edge, where you can be more opinionated, you can be more yourself, you can be more out there, you can comment on what other people are saying, as opposed to, as you mentioned, transitioning to CBS Sports and then, of course, Sports Illustrated, where they're asking you, all right, you go get this story now. And instead of being incredibly opinionated you can be but also tell what's actually happening and cover it down the middle which is something that I'm sure people that are interested in writing or write themselves know all about as far as Sports Illustrated goes and even from CBS Sports days was there something that you covered or a story that you were able to write where in a sense you might have been able to take a step back and go wow I've I've made it here this is something that I'm really good at or something that I really want to do was there anything that stands out as maybe that story that you've had throughout your writing career there um you know I, I don't look at it like that maybe some of the like the first time I did an all-star weekend or the first time I did the finals like I think my first finals was Heat Mavericks 2011 and you know I, I definitely get kind of goosebumps thinking back on that because it was such a stunning moment in LeBron's career and we had spent so much time that year just covering everything that was happening with the Heat uh, you know, a lot of the work I was doing early on at CBS was sort of aggregation. It's like, 
you know, basically it was like the daily LeBron, you know, what's happening with LeBron just day in, day out, waking up super early in the morning and, and writing, you know, kind of snap take responses to like just whatever happened, you know, the previous night with LeBron to see him kind of melt down in that finals, to have the pressure get to him, to have this sort of be this like signature failure of his career to watch that up close was really interesting. And then at that time, Greg Doyle with, uh, you know, he's now at the Indy star, but he was at CBS at the time. I mean, he really got himself into, uh, you know, some, some deep water kind of going back and forth with LeBron, you know, essentially saying, you know, do you realize that you're choking? And uh, that was a huge, uh, you know, Twitter storm, you know, back in the days when Twitter was still pretty small. I mean, it was really, really tense and heated type of situation. And to sort of be at ground level of that and watching it all unfold certainly was kind of like a surreal experience and uh, definitely learned a lot from that. Uh, You know, one of my prouder moments early on at SI, I did a ranking of all the slam dunk contests. So I spent like a month going back over all the archival footage and uh, going through and sort of ranking them in terms of, you know, which ones were the best, which ones were the worst. And I think that led the site. That might've been the first time I like led the whole site with a special project. Uh, certainly that was cool. Uh, first magazine cover story I had on Jimmy Butler was a big deal. I mean, it, there's a lot that goes into sort of uh, being able to position uh, a story to be ready for a cover. I mean, there's so much to get that from other sports from guys who are just the best in the business. If it's Lee Jenkins, Chris Ballard, I mean, it's, it's not easy to kind of squeeze into that real estate. So that was a big deal for me. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if there's, you know, one piece where I like, I felt like I made it or, or anything like that. I think maybe you feel that when you sign the contract, you know, I think that's kind of a feeling, you know, guys always say when they put the hat on at the NBA draft, you know, that's sort of like, Hey, I finally did it. This is real. And I think that that's sort of the same thing uh, for writers as well. Maybe it's it's not the actual work; it's sort of being put in position to do that work uh, that maybe sticks with you. It's a worthy thirty for thirty study or a Bill Simmons esque type documentary on how sports media has evolved from the last thirty years, from the last ten years, even from the last five the differences and advances that have been made in the industry that include the advancements of Twitter, the advancements in podcasts, how people are actually getting their news. And I'm sure it's not drastically different, but very different from when you first started with Sports Illustrated, how you might go about covering a specific story and how it ends up getting covered, whether that's for the magazine or online or or how you go about putting it out to the public. How have you been able to evolve with that change from going from maybe strictly, all right, I'm just writing to the magazine to now I actually have to do other obligations like radio interviews and podcasts like we're doing now. What has that evolution been like for you in your writing to sort of keep up with how the world has been going with sports writing? For sure. It's a great question. So I actually think I was brought on at both CBS and Sports Illustrated primarily because I had come up through the Blazers edge, you know, kind of ranks where versatility was totally key. Like, you know, that was a small business type environment at Blazers edge where we're doing everything. I'm writing, I'm editing, I'm doing a podcast uh, with Kevin Pelton, actually, who's now at ESPN. We we did a podcast together. uh, And, you know, I was doing local TV there, you know, post game shows uh, occasionally to, to just break down things. So I was doing constant sports radio hits. So to me, I was always pitching myself to them you know, from the versatility standpoint. 
And so I was never pegged as like a magazine only guy. I was sort of brought in, I think, as the web guy, essentially. And really what's changed uh, since I've been at Sports Illustrated is that they understand the value of sort of constant news in the 24-hour news cycle much more than they did, say, six years ago when I started. Um, at the time when I started, basically they had no ability to aggregate. So if SI guys weren't writing it, it kind of wasn't on the site. And so they brought me in to sort of fill in some of those goals. So, for example, if if ESPN breaks a story, you know, I would have uh, an analysis piece that would sort of build off of that, right? Like it wouldn't just be aggregation, but it would be like, here's a take about it. Um, what we have now is like an entire team of guys who are called the wire staff. And, you know, basically every media company has these guys now where, you know, if, if something happens, boom, you know, you aggregate it, you have your own site. And, and that takes some of the pressure off the writers to sort of always be on reacting to everything, which is, which is good. And I think how it should be. Um, social media in terms of their Twitter presence when I started was very limited. Um, now it's massive. I mean, we've got multiple different accounts. They're on Instagram. They weren't on Instagram for years. Uh, they really just sort of filled out their portfolio in terms of how you promote work. And so, you know, one good example that I could give would be, you know, I spoke to Charles Barkley last week for a, just a, you know, a quick phone interview basically for his off season recap, right? And in the past, I would maybe three years ago, I would have just written that story, sent it in, and that would have been it. This time, the process changed where I'm picking out what I think are his best quotes. I'm sending that to our editors who can pass that on to the digital team to say, hey, we need to make social graphics to kind of tease this story with these big time quotes. Uh, you know, I'm also, we're, we're lining up when exactly do we post this for maximum visibility. Uh, you know, it's kind of written in a way where it's less narrative it's more punchy. So like you get to the good stuff early on, you don't waste, you know, five or 600 words kind of waxing this logic about Charles Barkley's career. And so I would say in the style of the writing, in the methods of promotion, um, you know, in the, you know, just sort of end goal with a piece like that, rather than trying to, you know, dig into Barkley's childhood during my 15 minute interview, it's like, okay, we need to ask him about LeBron. We need his take on the Lakers. We need to know what he thinks of the Kawhi trade. And is Kevin Durant thin skinned, right? Like those kinds of topics where, you know, maybe five or six years ago, that wouldn't have been as of, you know, the greatest interest. At that point, I think this is what the audience has determined is newsworthy. I mean, these are the topics of the day. And so if you have a big, you know, uh, personality like Barkley who's willing to weigh in on those things, you know, that's what you need to ask them about. And uh, I think that is definitely different than it was five or six years ago. Uh, I think it's important to try to keep up with the Joneses and to stay on the cutting edge. And you know, certainly we're trying to do that at SI, and I'm trying to do that individually. Speaking of the cutting edge or change, it's a fun time to be a hoops enthusiast in that it seems like the NBA is the best league at evolving with its surroundings. Adam Silver is the new commissioner seems to be one step ahead of whatever whatever social issue is happening, whatever on-court issue is happening. He's not afraid to take that next step, to listen to people, and then to make that change. And on the same time, for the social media side of the NBA, NBA Twitter is incredibly fun, and it's afforded me several interviews for the show, including yourself. It's afforded hilarious conversations. It's afforded fake fights, meet me here, and we'll fight about Kobe Bryant. 
Shout out to Snotty Drippin'. What that's able to do is just make things a lot of fun, not only for the fans, but it's fun for the players. It's fun for the coaches. It's almost like a huge community that's been building over the years. And I don't know what to put a finger down and pinpoint how that's happened or why it's happened, but there's been quite the change, and I'm sure you've noticed it too from when you first started covering the league. Have you noticed a change in whether it be the league itself or the audience itself as opposed to how this is going and how many leaps and bounds are being made to the league, to its audience, and I'm sure it's even more fun to get to cover it as well. Yeah, I did a big feature piece with the guys who run Instagram Sports, and they have just a perfect perspective on the NBA versus other sports versus entertainment versus whatever else, and they swear by the NBA. I mean, they're drinking the NBA Kool-Aid, Kool-Aid, they're saying, look, NBA personality stars, starting with LeBron and going down from there, just completely understand the social, the power of social media, how you can promote yourself, how you can expand your platform, how you can use it for political issues, how you can use it to sell speakers, how you can use it to connect with your, your fan base and make them feel like they're part of your life, too. Um, and I think, you know, to me, that has been a gradually building type of thing where, you know, Twitter definitely was you know, the important launching step. I mean, I, I think that really helped me get noticed. It helped my coverage uh, of various NBA things, you know, be spread to audiences that, you know, wouldn't have been able to find them, you know, in the pre-Twitter era. Uh, there's no question about it. I think it also really helped the rumors culture. I mean, I think that's a big part of what makes the NBA, uh, you know, such a you know constant talking point is that guys are always getting traded. They're always rumored to be unhappy. Uh, and, you know, everybody can kind of play the hot stove game basically year round. Uh, and I think that's really helped the NBA kind of turn into that, you know, 11 or 12 month a year type of sport. Uh, so, I mean, social media, when I first started, was basically non-existent or a very small Twitter community. Uh, now it's like so big, you can't keep up with everything. Uh, like our strategy, like I mentioned earlier, in terms of like the, the graphics that we put out, I mean, there's certain graphics you want to have on Instagram. There's certain graphics you want to have on the Instagram stories. Maybe you tease something a little bit different on Twitter. Maybe you have a different headline on Facebook to ho- hook more people in there. I mean, you really have to think through all these different mediums and what really works on each of them individually uh, in much more detail than you would have had, you know, two, five years ago. And I think, uh, I would just encourage people to read that story I did about Instagram if they can go search it because it really digs into the nitty gritty on this topic, how different NBA teams are using social media to sort of capitalize on their fan base, how they're targeting like you know, jerseys uh, or, or ticket offers, uh, but then also how big stars, guys like Giannis and Joel Embiid have really crafted this whole off-court personality for themselves uh, that kind of complements what they do on the court. Uh, it's super fascinating. And you know, these guys who run Instagram sports, it's basically two guys in an office up in Silicon Valley. So they have their own very interesting story. And uh, like I said, I would just encourage people to read it if they're interested in that topic, because uh, it's, it's sort of a deep dive into how the smartest people from Adam Silver on down are using social media to really spread the game, uh, essentially, is what it's about. You co-host the Open Floor show with Andrew Sharp, who once noted that one of the reasons why he joined Sports Illustrated after his time with Grantland was because it shared a lot of similar missions with Grantland on the NBA side. And a quote from him is, there's so much talent already there, and it seemed like a natural fit for me. So aside from Andrew as well, 
Can you also speak to the talent that you get to work with at SI covering the NBA and, and even in the different departments? I mean, I always start this conversation by saying, like, Lee Jenkins is basically my personal life hero. Uh, you know, it's hard to, like, keep too much praise on him and still be able to look him in the eye and, and not have it be awkward. But I think in terms of what most writers are trying to do, which is profile important people and give you slices of what they're about and their perspectives on life. That's sort of the end goal. That's what everyone's trying to do in this industry. You know, most serious writers want to be those profile writers. And to me, nobody does it better than him in the NBA. And I think he's number one by a wide margin. I mean, you go back and look, whether it's LeBron, Katie, Westbrook, Harden, Chris Paul, uh, you just name almost any player who matters in the NBA, and Lee has done sort of definitive stories uh, on those guys. And, and really, you know, in some cases, like even his profile on Coach Dwayne Casey up there in Toronto last year, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder, like, is there a bump? Like, does Dwayne Casey win Coach of the Year in part because of Lee's story about him goes so big and everybody reads about him and they latch onto that story and now they're rooting for him? Uh, I, he just has an incredible eye for uh, his his subject matter, his topics, you know, making sure he's hitting guys when they're interesting points of their career. And then he's just, you know, a fabulous writer from a technical perspective. And he's a great reporter in terms of, you know, going above and beyond to get the, the supplementary interviews that are necessary to get those kinds of nuggets that'll stand out <clears throat> in the piece. Uh, you know, besides him, I mean, you know, I could talk about these guys all day. Chris Ballard, if you're looking for a long-form writer, a guy who can, you know, make you cry and make you laugh in the same piece, like that's your guy, whether it's Monty Williams, uh, you know, Ryan Anderson. I mean, the list goes on and on of stories that, that he's done that, you know, are winning awards, are getting put in the best American sports writing anthologies that are, you know, really showing how basketball, you know, it's not just a sport, you know, it's it's human life. I think that's you know, his unique gift and, uh, he's done some incredible detailed reporting. A story on Sam Hinkie comes to mind where you know, he's following the guy around. He's you know, really getting inside what makes, uh, you know, kind of an interesting and complicated guy tick. Uh, and then, you know, on our web staff or our guys who are writing most for the web, I mean, Rob Mahoney is somebody who joined SI when I did. Every year we do the top 100 ranking. Uh, you know, I talked to him for dozens of hours to try to like put together who's going to be, you know, the number one player who's, who's, uh, you know, entering the top 10 for the first time. Uh, you know, so that's, that's a lot of fun. And then of course, Andrew, you know, we're probably sick of each other at this point because we do so many <laughs> podcasts together and we love, uh, you know, we love arguing about basically everything. Uh, but he's been amazing for us the last couple of years, you know, bringing some levity. You know, I think if there's one weakness we had as a staff, you know, we could probably be a little too serious, you know, between Rob, Chris, Lee and myself, you know, we're all, you know, kind of buttoned up type guys, you know, more or less. And Andrew is, you know, very good at letting it shoot from the hip, you know, from the hip, uh, from being, being funny, from writing with lots and lots of voice. Uh, and that was just something that we needed with our staff. And I think it was a, you know, a really smart addition. And he pulls, I think I always give him credit for, you know, the success or whatever we might have with the podcast, because I think he's the type of guy who makes his teammates better. You know, he's kind of that pass first point guard where he cares more about the team's success than his own success. And I think he's a very, very good host uh, when it comes to podcasting and, and putting people in position to, uh, you know, succeed on air.
And so I, that's kind of how I break down our staff. I mean, I, I'm sounding like a scout right now, but, uh, you know, I, I love working with these guys. And, you know, I really like what our mission is, which is, you know, kind of big picture thinking, original analysis, you know, great reporting. I mean, that's what I think covering the NBA should be about. And I'm glad we have, uh, you know, bosses who feel the same way. I have one final segment for you, but I have to ease into it by maybe educating the listeners on one of the topics. You've been deemed a jungle icon and a jungle legend as part of appearances on Jim Rome's show. Jim Rome, a local radio legend, still a legend now at CBS Sports Radio, and has interesting listeners, I guess you would say, diehard listeners to say the least, clones as they're called. And every year there is a smack-off, a much-hyped annual event, and it's something where callers across the country are pitted against each other to basically win this $5,000 cash prize in any way that they can. Now, last year, a photo from 1996, I believe, was rehashed with some of those included in the first photo and more clones in the second to go off the SI piece from Jim Rome when he was a local star. They wrote this huge article. You got to do the, like, remember when and then we'll bring it back type of article in 2017. I'm interested to know what that experience was like because if you do a story about Jim Rome and it involves his listeners, they'll be on you if you don't get everything right about their 20-plus year history of listening to the show. So to say you probably had to immerse yourself in the jungle, puns intended, is probably an understatement. Well, no, no question. First of all, I was a listener back in the day. I mean, I remember I had this big, blocky, yellow radio, you know, when I was, you know, like 10, 11 years old. I mean, I'm learning all sorts of words I shouldn't have been learning, and my parents would probably be mortified if they knew what I was listening to when I was uh, tuning into the Jim Rome show. But I was, you know, a, a Rome stand from a very, very early age. I mean, I, I loved his show when I was a kid growing up, and um, you know, we got it in Portland and, uh, you know, people can relate to that across the country. It's like, you know, anytime you get the Rome affiliate, it's like, awesome. You know, it, this is something a lot different than whatever you're hearing on your local station. Uh, you know, the left, uh, in Laguna reached out to me and said, Hey, here's what we're doing. We're trying to recreate this photo from basically 25 years ago. Uh, we're going to bring in a bunch of the original listeners. Do you want to just tag along and, and kind of document it? And it barely worked schedule-wise. I was, like, rushing back from Las Vegas because I had been there covering an event. And thankfully, it all came together. But it was just a wild ride. I mean, these guys were basically day drinking at, like, 8 a.m. to pregame for, the, uh, for their calls. They were all crammed into a hotel room. They had cap guns. They were firing off cap guns as part of their skit. And, you know, they're in a hotel lobby. This like, kind of fancy hotel uh, down in Irvine here, you know, Jim's studio. And, you know, all these people are kind of wandering by, like tourists are wandering by saying, like, who the heck are these guys? Like, what are they doing here with, like, tables of beer at, like, 8, 8.30 in the morning? Uh, but they went into this law office to do one of the calls. Uh, you know, of course, Lev and Laguna uh, wound up winning, which, you know, set off a big celebration afterwards. And, uh, you know, it was just a wild morning. And it was great to see... You know, my takeaway from it really was just to see the look on Jim's face when he saw all these people who had been calling into his show since the 90s. And in some cases, you know, he had hung out with them at events locally in Southern California. 
he knew these guys personally, but maybe he hadn't seen them in 20 years. It was really like a family reunion. I mean, you could tell he had goosebumps. He was just kind of blown away by the affection that they had for him. So to just kind of be a fly on the wall for that whole experience was great. And then they put me on the spot and they said, okay, well, we want to do a podcast. So you tell us about your Jim Rome experience. So I, I told Jim exactly what I had told you about, you know, listening on the big yellow radio when I was a kid up in Portland and, you know, learning all of their slang, the smack off talk and, uh, you know, rack them and all that stuff. And I could tell he was getting a kick out of it too. So every time I go on now and I, I you know, I go on anytime they ask. I mean, I'm, I, I really revere Jim in terms of what he's done with his career uh, every time I go on now, he's always like, you know, kind of, you know, making allusions to, to, to those conversations that we had in Irvine last year. So to me, it was just awesome. Uh, you know, you don't have many days as a writer that are as fun and kind of freewheeling as that. And I think you, there's not very many sports uh, media people who can say they have a fan base that stuck with them for like three decades, like Jim has. And I think that's a real credit to who he is, not only as a a radio broadcaster, but also a person. The last segment is something I like to do, a quick-hitting question segment called Easy or Pass. And you can certainly pass on any of the questions, but hopefully they'll be good enough where we can continue on. So in alluding to Jim Rome, or in speaking on Jim Rome, since we've mentioned him and Charles Barkley already, both stars in one of my favorite sports films of all time, Space Jam, though on much different levels of stardom, who was your favorite actor in Space Jam, assuming that you've seen it? Well, yeah, of course I've seen Space Jam. I did a big, actually, I did a big article on the anniversary of Space Jam uh, that actually Jordan Brand helped me put together. So if there's Space Jam junkies out there, go check that out because we, we dug into it pretty deeply. I have, this is a cop-out. Uh, well, actually, first of all, I thought Sean Bradley and Muggsy Bugs were both hilarious in that movie, underrated, but... To me, the best actor is MJ. I'm an MJ stand through and through. I was, you know, like perfectly timed in terms of when I was a kid to just kind of be completely overwhelmed by the Jordan, like global wave. And if you rewatch the movie, it's hilarious how they did the product placement because nowadays product placement is in every single show you watch. It's in, you know, sitcoms, TV, every movie, like even big time movies now, there's product placement. And it's just shameless. But back then, it was not as big of a thing. So for Jordan to kind of like, smile, uh, you know, slyly try to sell you Wheaties and Haynes underwear, you know, kind of like just like getting in these little references during the script, which made no sense at all, like to the actual, uh, you know, unfolding of events, to me was pretty funny. But, you know, it's anything that Jordan's involved, you know, I mean, I'll always say Mike over LeBron and the GOAT debate. Um, you know, I'll take Mike over anybody, basically. So, you know, in his own movie, there's no way I'm going to say somebody was better than uh, better than Mike in terms of an acting perspective. This is a little bit of a harder question because Michael Jordan wasn't part of this. In NBA Jam or NBA Hang Time, do you have a favorite team pairing that would be your go-to if you were to play it today? Man, that's a good one. Uh, it's been a long time since I looked at the NBA Jam rosters. I feel like Peyton and Kemp is sort of a lot of people's go-to. Um, you know, that's tough because as a Portland kid, you know, there was that rivalry with the Sonics for a long time. He did the I-5 rivalry. But I feel like that one's pretty tough to top. I mean, especially in terms of how those personalities have aged. You know, I mean, both of them have just been larger than life. I was actually reading my email this morning and this company, Just Don, has put out these like tribute shirts to, to Sean Kemp. 
you know, again, 25, 30 years later, kind of capitalizing on the nostalgia factor. Uh, those guys really endured. That's pretty tough to top. I'm not sure if you could do better than Peyton and Kemp. I mean, I was also a big, big Stockton guy, and I know not a lot of people think that's very cool to say. and Maybe you shouldn't say that out loud. I just never got into the mailman. So, like, the Stockton-Malone pairing, to me, it's like if you could just have Stockton and maybe – you know, put him with someone else. I would have been more excited about that duo. But uh, you know, in terms of underrated '90s stars, I feel like he always gets overlooked in the conversation. I mean, his uh, longevity and, and his impact. I mean, obviously, he's not very cool uh, compared to like Peyton and, and Kemp in that game. But uh, I feel like uh, he's somebody who deserves more attention than he's gotten. But I, I think you know. Long story short, my answer is Peyton Kemp. I like that. Maybe that's another oral history or long form piece you can throw together in another off season NBA jam or NBA hang time. Most likely to have a real beef. You mentioned this with Chuck about KD and CJ McCollum. He threw back that Shaq is just as soft as KD is, but a real beef KD and CJ or Shaq and Chuck. We've seen both of them go at it. Who do you think would actually get into a beef and have a Mike and the Mad Dog esque not talk to each other for six months type of beef? I think that because Shaq and Charles are sort of like brothers where they spend so much time together. And I've actually visited the TNT studios with those guys. And obviously their shows are not that long, uh, you know, in terms of like total minutes on air. But the amount of time that they did devote, like Ernie Johnson, for example, he shows up at noon and doesn't leave until 3 a.m. sometimes on his on his work days. Now, you know, Charles and Shaq are probably closer to like, you know, 5 p.m. to 2 a.m. or something like that. But those are long days where you can really grind on each other and neither one of them will ever, uh, you know, let up. So I would say that they're much more likely to have a real beef just because of how much time they spend together. But in terms of like real beefs around the NBA, I think anything involving Draymond, I mean, of course, he made news this week, like him versus Tristan, but I feel like him versus Steven Adams, him versus Tristan, like him versus the world is the most likely real NBA beef because here in the next couple of years, Draymond's physical tools are going to start to diminish a little bit, and he's going to be looking for ways to make up for that, and he's going to do it with trash talk. He's going to do it with annoying people and getting under their skins. He's going to do it with, uh, you know, essentially taunting and going after the referees and all that stuff. I think Draymond, to me, is kind of like a powder keg, and he already has been for the last couple of years. But if you're looking for, like, just years' worth of beefs coming in the future, to me, he's the guy the conversation starts with. I have two more for you, and I appreciate you being incredibly generous with your time. I read that you have a passion for hiking, so I would be remiss without asking you where your favorite hiking spot is. Man, that's tough. Like This could be a four-hour podcast if we really <laughs> want to break that down. Um, so I've been on a big national parks kick here the last few years. To me, it's like when you're stuck on a computer in a, you know, at a home office or at an arena or surrounded by 20,000 screaming people for month after month after month, when you do get some downtime, you want to just get away as quickly as possible and like just get to the middle of nowhere. I think my favorite national park I've been to is Glacier up in Montana. It's called the Crown of the Continent. It's not false advertising. It's the Crown. Like it, it is really, really spectacular. Unbelievable. I went there in, uh, I think August or yeah, late August 
So it wasn't quite as hot um, as it sometimes gets, and it was just absolutely beautiful. So I think that'd be number one. Another memorable moment, I went on a moose safari, and it was like a, not a hunting safari, it was a, you know, a viewing safari um, up in Maine. And I got myself like three or four hours away from, you know, cell service, like out in just the middle of nowhere, saw a beautiful mother moose with her baby moose. And I was just on this idyllic little lake. That image will always stick with me. It was just sort of like you felt like you were going back, you know, a thousand years in time before civilization even existed. So I don't want to get to, you know, too crazy here, too off the, the beaten path with your listeners, but uh, I highly recommend to everyone, like, look, take a break from life, go out and see what kind of national parks are near you or, or state parks, uh, and just, you know, cleanse your mind, get off social media, you know, find the balance. Uh, because to me, it really helps me, you know, stay motivated and stay engaged with my, my daily work. And I think it can work for everybody. The last one involves you mentioning the 2011 finals, the media almost obsessively having to cover LeBron James at that stage. And perhaps you're excited to get to do that again in Los Angeles this upcoming season, because assuredly it will be a media circus day in and day out with the Los Angeles Lakers, not only for LeBron, but for his cohorts now on the roster, perhaps the best NBA meme team in the history of the league. Is there a storyline you're most looking forward to for this upcoming 2018-19 season? I'll say this. I'm a pacifist by nature. I don't root for violence. But this is the kind of team, the Lakers, that should be having fist fights at training camp. Okay. They, like, you have so many young guys and you've got all these veterans who are going to be testing those young guys. Lonzo, what are you made out of? Brandon Ingram, you know, are you ready to be a late game killer who we've seen flashes of? Or are you going to kind of float through games like Andrew Wiggins? Kuzma, are you ready to play any defense this season? Uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on in terms of the young guys who are going to be challenged by these vets. And these vets are not going to give them anything. Rondo is probably the most stubborn player in the entire NBA. Lance Stevenson goes at LeBron. He's not going to be afraid to go out these young uh, lottery picks. Uh, JaVale McGee has worked hard to kind of craft himself into a meaningful role in the NBA. He doesn't want to give that up, uh, you know, not after where he was, say, two or three years ago before his Golden State experience. So I think that this is the type of team where, it will actually be healthy if you have significant conflict during training camp because that means the young guys are pushing back and they're standing up for each other. I think the worst-case scenario is the veterans kind of steamroll those guys, right? They just say, look, you're not ready yet. We're trying to win now. We have to put the best players on the court. LeBron doesn't have patience for development. And you know, Luke Walton finds himself in a situation where he has to play all the vets and you know, the young guys are on the bench. That's not what you want to have happen. I think if you're a Lakers fan, you want to see these young guys, uh, you know, rise to the moment and, and you know, shake off these challenges and show that their talent isn't just theoretical talent, it's actual talent ready to impact games right now. So I think heading into the season, aside from LeBron mania, which obviously is going to be the story for everybody, that dynamic between the young guys and the vets and how that plays out is definitely what I've got circled for the Lakers. I don't know. Even as a Lakers fan, the part of me somewhat thrives and wants another grainy cell phone video of Kobe yelling, you're Charmin soft, Dwight Howard, and we can really get this season going. 
Ben, it's been a pleasure getting to talk to you about your career and peeling back the curtain of some of the things you've been able to do at CBS Sports and Sports Illustrated and give the listeners somewhat of a better idea of what goes into this business. Before we let you go, do you have anything to maybe promote any pieces that are coming up in the next couple weeks? I'm sure we can definitely come to your Twitter page, etc. once the preseason starts and we get started, but anything else you might be working on from now until then? No, we're, we're always grinding stuff out, so just check out si.com slash MBA. You know, you'll be able to find all our stuff there. I'm at Ben Gulliver on Twitter, uh, Ben.Gulliver on Instagram, and it's the Open Floor Podcast. You can find that on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else. Um, I think that's four plugs. I probably reached my limit, so we probably should leave it there, huh? And as your Twitter page says, though, you already know. Ben, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. All right, bro. Thanks again to Ben for jumping on the show. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Barice. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it to hold the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so, along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe will break down Ant-Man and the Wasp, which Rotten Tomatoes describes, From the Marvel Cinematic Universe comes a new chapter. Featuring heroes with the astonishing ability to shrink, Ant-Man and the Wasp. In the aftermath of Captain America Civil War, Scott Lang grapples with the consequences of his choices as both a superhero and a father. As he struggles to rebalance his home life with his responsibilities as Ant-Man, he's confronted with an urgent new mission. Scott must once again put on the suit and learn to fight alongside the Wasp, as the team works together to uncover secrets from their past. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Barice. Yeah! Woo! What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is 5 Minutes in the Film Room. A few months ago, Avengers Infinity War gave audiences, and especially fans of the franchise, one of the most unique theater experiences in the history of movies. Thanos collected the Infinity Stones and with a snap of his fingers killed half the universe, including many of our favorite heroes. Kind of a dour ending for a movie in the mostly fun Marvel Cinematic Universe. Infinity War also adds a post credit stinger that sets up a Captain Marvel movie. It was a great film that changed the complexion of the franchise. Enter Ant-Man and the Wasp, which looked as though it had nothing to do with Avengers Infinity War. Leading up to the movie, my struggle with Ant-Man and the Wasp was that I wanted to see a film that advanced the plot of Infinity War. My fear was it would be this out-of-place film sandwiched between the more important movies. So I think we have to tackle not only the question, was this movie good, but also, was the timing correct? Let's go to the tape.
I enjoyed the first Ant-Man and Ant-Man's appearance in Captain America Civil War. Paul Rudd's a very good comedic actor and perfect for the role of Ant-Man slash Scott Lang. And you could go right down the list. Everybody is good and fits nicely into their roles. Evangeline Lilly is always good, Michael Douglas, Michael Pena, and T.I. Everyone fits so well and it really aids the tone of the film. Ant-Man and the Wasp is a comedy. It doesn't hit on everything, but it is a very funny movie and a lot of fun. Rudd is great, and Pena carries over his humor from the first installment. The action sequences are also pretty entertaining, so the comedic dialogue and fun sequences are the film's strengths. Everything else is more so serviceable. The plot is there to serve the comedic moments, but the story is kind of bland. The main villain is much of the same, with motivations that fit but are not so interesting. I actually enjoyed the secondary villain in Walton Goggins a little more, because he and his henchmen fit the tone of the film. Much like the first film, Ant-Man and the Wasp is another fun entry into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's a good movie for what it's trying to accomplish with solid acting and actors who fit seamlessly into their roles, fun dialogue, and entertaining action. But is it the movie we needed three months after the release of Infinity War? My answer is yes. After the devastating events of Infinity War that left my friends and I depressed for the evening and myself to tell a bartender to turn off Thor because I didn't want anything to do with the MCU right now, a little levity was pretty refreshing. We'll get our Captain Marvel in March and the next Avengers movie in May. But maybe that's just me. So if you're looking for a movie to advance the plot of Infinity War, answer questions, or somehow bring back some of our beloved heroes, Ant-Man and the Wasp is not for you. Otherwise, go have fun with this movie. The bottom line, Ant-Man and the Wasp is another solid film on the Marvel machine, which is on its 20th film. To put that into perspective, there have been 24 James Bond films released. It's a well-acted, entertaining film with characters you're happy to return to and a fun script. Everything else about the film makes Ant-Man and the Wasp slide somewhere into the middle of the pack of the best MCU films, but again, they're all good. As far as the bigger picture, Ant-Man and the Wasp can be skipped. It doesn't add anything to the overarching Infinity War plot that has our attention, but definitely go and have a good time. That's what movies are for, and make sure to stay for the credits. I'll compare Ant-Man and the Wasp to the NFL preseason. Yes, the start of it means that you still have weeks before the regular season, but it helps tide you over to the time of year that really matters. You think of the potential your team has and start picking your fantasy squads, believing this could be the year you take that championship. Does it all matter in the grand scheme of things? No. But it's nice to have a little fun before the games really mean something. Sexy. Check! Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night. And also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into Major League Baseball, dabble in the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. <laughs>